0: Nice, Hebrews 2020, increment 75, we're going to Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7, and we'll be hitting quite a few other places as well, so a word of prayer will suffice to begin. Father, we pray that you'll use this message as a conduit to deliver your saving grace, your sanctifying grace, and your healing grace into the souls of many. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Theologically speaking, Hebrews 3 7 begins with a conflation of pneumatology and bibliology. Simply defined, pneumatology is the study or the word about the Holy Spirit. Here, as elsewhere in the scriptures, the Holy Spirit is a person of the triune being called God. Bibliology is the study of the scriptures, simply stated. Now I say that there's a conflation here of these two disciplines of theology, pneumatology and bibliology, because the Holy Spirit is explicitly said here to be the speaker in the passage that is a transplanted. Passage of Scripture transplanted almost entirely except with three very seemingly insignificant but very significant changes into Psalm from Psalm ninety-four, seven B to eleven, into Hebrews three. 7b to 11. Pneumatology, spelled P-N-E-U-M-A-T-O-L-O-G-Y, and bibliology also intersect in 2 Timothy 3.16, where it says all scripture is God-breathed. All scripture, bibliology, God-breathed, pneumatology. Theopneustos is actually used here, literally God-breathed. In addition to 2 Peter These two verses, these two passages, 2 Timothy 3.16 and 2 Peter 1.20-21 tells the story. So in addition, 2 Peter 1.20-21 says, First of all, Peter's teaching a bibliology class here. He says, First of all, we must know this, that no prophecy of Scripture is to be interpreted on one's own because no prophecy ever came by the will of man. On the contrary, moved by the Holy Spirit, penumitas hagiou here, men spoke from God. So the scripture in its totality, all of what we call the canonical books of the Bible, of which there are 66, is said to be breathed by the eternal breath of God. And so the scriptures are the eternally breathed breath of God and word of God. The eternal Holy Spirit, as he's called in Hebrews 9.14, well, if you conflate Hebrews 3.7 with 9.14, he is the eternal Holy Spirit. He is the breath of God. The scriptures are breathed by God, the Holy Spirit. Consequently, Psalm 95, which is in our Septuagint, the Greek translation, Psalm 94, not only has been breathed by the Holy Spirit, but is currently the breath or the speaking of the Holy Spirit. Now, I say the breath or the speaking both together, the breath or the speaking of the Spirit, because the Spirit breathes words. As the Father has spoken the word eternally, which is his Son, Hebrews 1, 2, John 1, 1 and 2. Even as the Son, in the days of his flesh, has articulated words that he says are spirit and life. My words are spirit and life. In Hebrews three seven we ask the question then, who is speaking the sentence that begins with the word today? The answer is right there in your face. The Holy Spirit. The Greek phrase says "Dia Kathos lege, ta pneuma Ta Hagion. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says. And this is in the present active indicative, which means the Spirit is speaking presently in an ongoing way. For as the Holy Spirit says, Today. Now in this phrase, As the Holy Spirit says, the verb legge or leggei, L-E-G-E-I. Legge, no dot over the Greek iota, of course. Legge. The Greek word legge here is in a form that is in the present tense. The scriptures, in other words, aren't only initially or originally breathed and spoken by the Holy Spirit. They are being spoken afresh by the Holy Spirit, to be applied in contemporary scenarios. That's what I call in my notes, OTLOT, O-T-L-O-T, on the level of our time. And the Spirit speaks now, today, into our contemporary scenario. The Holy Spirit is saying today, to the initial recipients of this homily, and... To us its twenty first century recipients. Today, if you hear the voice refers to the voice of God our Savior. Remember the context here. He's in Psalm ninety four of the Greek text of the Old Testament. And Psalm ninety four begins with God our Savior, a reference to God our Savior. So the Holy Spirit is saying today, if you hear his voice, he's speaking of the voice of God, our Savior, specifically. That name, that title, Psalm 94.1. That's Septuagint. Of course, Psalm 95.1 in your English translations. So today, I would have to say, today, if you hear the voice Of God our Savior. Now, we're talking about a voice, therefore, that conveys salvation. It conveys grace that saves. That saves the mind, that saves the soul, that saves the lives of its recipients. God our Savior. Today, if you hear the voice of God our Savior, and He's the Savior of all mankind, as we learn from First Timothy two three, where he's called God our Savior, who wills the salvation of all in two four, and is the Savior of all in first Timothy four ten, especially of those who believe, as we've been seeing. And so today if you hear the voice of God our Savior, don't harden your heart. By that it means don't close the gate to your heart to prevent the admission of God's counsel. His advice, we could even say. Remember Jesus said, I advise you to buy from me ointment for your eyes, gold, etc. It's God's counsel. God's counsel is always toward salvation, toward some kind of preservation or deliverance in any given scenario. So, Whatever you do, don't say no, is what's being said here. His counsel has a saving effect. His word, admitted and implanted into the heart, is capable of saving the soul. It's already designed for that capability and produces that effect, as James one twenty one says. The engrafted word, that's word that's been Admitted, the heart isn't hard. the heart opens to receive that word. The word engrafts or implants itself on the sides of the soul, as it were, and has power to save the soul. Now that means many, many things to we could say, if we wanted to go into the realm of psychology or psychiatry, we could say that it saves the soul from depression, from anxiety, from confusion. From harmful addictions of all kinds, from self destructive thought habits and patterns, from slavish desires, twisted ambitions that result in self induced misery. The point of this passage is that the majority of a certain generation in Israel's history did harden their hearts. As a result, their dead bodies were strewn across a desert. That's how Paul put it, speaking of the same generation, 1 Corinthians 10:6. Make that 10:5 talks about their bodies being strewn across the desert. One doesn't have to watch a lot of movies to get the image in the mind of what that looks like. Bodies in the desert. Thousands, tens of thousands of them. Rather than inhabiting a wonderful and prosperous inheritance in a lush and prolific land that God had made ready for them, they died in a desert. Hebrews three 7. Let's go back there. You see, I like to step out a little bit and then step back a little. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, we're talking about God the Savior's voice, this formula, today, if you hear his voice, is repeated. And this is important to the whole structure of this homily. It's repeated in 315 of Hebrews and again in 4 7, which leads me to think that this section of the homily extends at least from 3 7 through 4 7. Though the theme of God's voice actually extends all the way into Hebrews 12. In verses 19 and 26, the voice that is yet to shake the heavens as well as the earth. In fact, seven introduces a section of the homily that extends all the way through 4.13. And the 4.12 and 13 are the famous two verses about the word of God being alive or operational. Alive and operational. Effective. 4.14 of Hebrews then returns to the subject of Jesus as archpriest that first came into play in Hebrews 2.17-18. to 18. See, along the way I'm trying to give you a sense of the structure of the whole of Hebrews. In the context of Septuagint Psalm 94, the voice belongs to the Lord. In other words, the Holy Spirit says, the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, that's one person of the triune being we call God, talking about the voice of another person of the being called God. And so, again, we could say that he is the Lord. That's what he's called before Psalm thirty or before Psalm ninety four seven happens. He's called the Lord. He's called God our Savior in ninety four one. He is called a great God and a great king over all the gods. That's whose voice we're hearing, Psalm 94.3. He's called the Lord who made us in Psalm 94.6. If anyone I wanted to listen to in this world today, it would be the one who made me, who designed me, who formed me in my mother's womb, who called me. I'd want to listen to his voice above all others. Then he's simply called our God. All of these are titles for him in Psalm 94. And so when the Holy Spirit says today, if you hear his voice, he means the voice of the Lord, God our Savior, a great God and a great king over all gods, the Lord who made us God. In fact, he's also called in an oblique way our great shepherd, as is implied by Psalm ninety four seven a, in the immediate context of ninety four point seven 9, a, the immediate context of ninety four seven b is ninety four a, which says seven a, which says we are people of his pasture and sheep of his hand. Again. Those are all pretty good reasons not to harden our hearts if we hear his voice because we are likened to sheep of his pasture and people of his pasture, sheep of his hand. Those are pretty good reasons not to harden our hearts if we hear his voice because the shepherd's voice leads us to prosperity, green pastures, still waters, etc. Again, there's a magnificent correlation of this passage with John's gospel John chapter 10 in which Jesus identifies himself as the good shepherd who lays his life down for the sheep John 10:11 and speaking of hearing his voice and the sh- by the sheep of his hand those two phrases hearing his voice and the sheep of his hand how about John 10, 27 and 28? My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. So the hearing there is a heeding, not just a hearing of auditory sounds, but a listening to, a humbling before and an impressive impression of that word my sheep hear my voice I know them and they follow me and then verse 28 and I myself give them the life of the coming age and they will never perish throughout the age and no one will ever steal them please notice this phrase from my hand they are the sheep of his hand they hear his voice. You see this very strong implication. I've not read this in any of the seven or eight commentaries or more that I've read about Hebrews where the connection is made to the shepherd's voice. And so this again, our commentary, isn't like other commentaries. It comes through John's Gospel. It comes through context of the passages that we're studying and the passages that the Holy Spirit selects for quotation. So that we are the sheep of his hand means that we are, quite simply, in his hand. A whole mixture of metaphors here. In the care of his omnipotent love, in other words. The hearing of his voice today, in Hebrews 3, 7, is connected with hearing the voice of the shepherd by the sheep of his hand, the people of his pasture. This phrase keeps bumping into my head and almost gains entry. It's called the Israel of God, a phrase only used once in the entire Bible, Galatians 6.16. I'll just leave it as a hint for now. In Psalm 99, the LXX or Septuagint Psalm 99, which again in your English Bibles is Psalm 100. and verse 3, correlates with this Psalm 94, 7, saying this, Acknowledge that the Lord, he is God. It is he who has made us and not we ourselves. In fact, the better translation doesn't say, it is me who has made us and not we ourselves. It actually says, it is is he who has made us and not we him. We didn't make, like the idols, people make the gods that are idols. The true God makes people, makes the people. So again, Psalm 100, verse 3, which is the Septuagint 99.3, correlates splendidly with Psalm 94.7a in the Septuagint. Acknowledge that the Lord, he is God. It is he who has made us and not we him. And then it says, we are his people and the sheep of his pasture. And this kind of blends splendidly splendidly with Psalm 94, where it says that we are the sheep of his hand, the people of his pasture. Here it says, we are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Blend those two together and you have quite an extraordinary conflation in the Psalms makes me think that the Psalms also belong together as a single book with themes that resonate throughout. So as if to put an exclamation mark on this, Hebrews 13.20, almost at the very end of the homily, calls Jesus the Lord the great shepherd of the sheep. So the Holy Spirit saying, today if you hear his voice, the voice of the great shepherd of the sheep, who happens to be the man Christ Jesus, whom God led up out of the realm of the dead. You're listening to an extraordinary voice. The great shepherd of the sheep, whom the God of peace that verse is very loaded, incidentally, Hebrews thirteen twenty, Whom the God of peace brought up from the realm of the dead on account of the blood of the everlasting covenant. Meaning, in answer to Jesus' death, whose blood ratified a new covenant, God raised him up. It, it's a very tender scene of him actually leading up from the realm of the dead. By a path of life, as Psalm 16 says it, into life and resurrection. What a glorious thing it is. And we're all going to be sons and daughters of the resurrection. We already are. We're raised together with him. We have yet to experience that bodily transformation that's going to be so fantastic. You want to hear the voice of someone? How about the voice of the one who's going to bring that about in your life? Who's more important? So today, if we wanted to expand this, I would say today, if you, the sheep of his hand and the people of his pasture, hear the great shepherd of the sheep, don't harden your hearts. What is often not considered here, then, is the connection to the Lord as our shepherd, also the subject of perhaps the most famous and most often quoted, read, and recited of all the canonical Psalms, namely Psalm 23, which in the Septuagint is Psalm 22. So what's the alternative to listening? Well, that's the point here. The alternative to listening is Heeding and following the shepherd is hardening the heart, which is a refusal to listen. Some people refuse to listen because they know it already. They think. They know everything already. And as I often say, it's hard to inform omniscience. A teacher knows this if he tries to teach say a teenager if the teenager thinks because he's read a book or two and listens to things online a lot he knows everything so you as a teacher can't get through to him or her because you can't inform omniscience omniscience has all knowledge how can you add to that and so that's a way of hardening the heart you think you know everything already so it takes humility it takes humility to learn the humble shall hear and be glad. Psalm 34.2. I love that verse. The alternative then to hearing, listening, heeding, and following the shepherd into life is hardening the heart, which is a refusal to listen. To harden the heart is to make the will stubborn in human obstinacy. This kind of stubbornness is not a virtue. Pushing your heels in, in this case, is not a virtue. If someone's trying to lead you into a destructive path, a self-destructive immorality, you dig your heels in, stubbornness then is a virtue. Here, it's not. It is inflexibility and intransigence against mind and life-saving conversions. To harden the heart is to be intransigent and inflexible and obdurate and willful against mind and life saving conversions. The PT quotes the rest of the Psalm from ninety-four seven B through eleven in order to present a warning by way of example of what happened when the majority of an entire Generation of people, people who had experienced remarkable signs and wonders that have not been seen before in all the history of the world, and not again until the greatest miracle of all, which is the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. A generation of people delivered so dramatically, saved so gloriously, the majority of an entire generation, that generation hardened their hearts subsequently to the voice of the shepherd who was leading them through the desert to green pastures still waters, and a cup that is intoxicating with the ecstasy of genuine joy. That's what the psalmist meant when he said, my cup runs over. It means the cup I'm drinking now intoxicates me. It intoxicates me with a joy that is forfeited by those who are intoxicated otherwise. And so the Bible says, be not drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit, implying that there is a genuine and legitimate intoxication there and so they forfeited that as people do today they forfeit the genuine intoxication of a joy that's unequaled and unparalleled by any activity that you can engage in in this world a joy that overflows it's called an unspeakable joy because there's nothing that can describe it in first Peter 1 8 there are no words on earth to describe this joy this transportation, as we might say, out of this world and the taste and foretaste of the world to come. That's where God wants to guide us and direct us by his voice. We say, no, no, I don't want to experience a transportation of great and extraordinary joy that's beyond anything that anyone can even describe in this world. No, don't want it, thank you. I'll be very happy with the stimulation momentarily that I can have by things in this world that end up having either a hangover or some kind of effect afterwards that kills me. Thank you, I'll take that instead. Wow, well, that's really brilliant. But that's where we are. That's the human condition. I'm not even going to judge it. I'm, I am part of a thing called humanity. And I am in what is known as a human condition. But I've also tasted of the powers of the world to come. And I keep on getting beckoned on forward. And so have you, many of you who are listening to me. Some of you will experience that during the course of this very message. The powers of the age to come. Pulling you on. Introducing themselves to you in the form of the Spirit's voice. And so, there is a warning here. The Holy Spirit says, listen to the shepherd. It's amazing that the three persons, subjects of the triune being we call God, are persons in relation. You can't separate and segregate them as if they're three persons in a room, socially distanced, with masks on. These are three persons who are in constant loving relation. And so, the Holy Spirit says, listen to the shepherd, who is also known as the Son of Man in John 151. But The Son of Man, if you read Revelation, complimenting John, on the other hand, says, listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches, present tense. Listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches, 2.7, 11 two hundred seventeen, two hundred twenty nine, three six, three hundred thirteen, three hundred twenty two. How do I know all those? Because we went through those in the book of Revelation at great length. The Son of Man says, listen to what the Spirit is saying. The Spirit says, listen to what the Son of Man is saying. The Spirit says, listen to the shepherd. The shepherd says, listen to the Spirit. And the seven spirits of God mentioned four times in Revelation is a depiction of the Holy Spirit who sent into all the earth to testify of the Lamb of God, of Christ, who appeared once at the juncture of the eons to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself, in Hebrews 9.26. That truth is triumphs over all other truths especially those things that where you think that you can lose your salvation verses that seem to suggest it that triumphs over all those the subjects the uncreated unlimited and all powerful persons of the triune being we called God are persons in relation persons hyphen in hyphen relation the lord jesus spoke of the coming of the spirit of truth in john 14:16 to 17 he says he's going to, the father's going to send him because i'm going to make a petition to the father for him to send him see there's the triune god persons in relation the holy spirit he said will lead you into all the truth in john 16:13 but when the spirit of truth speaks as we learn from thirteen John 16, 14, and 15 and following, he speaks of the Father and of the Son, what the Father told him to say and what the Son has said. John fourteen twenty six. he recalls to you the things that I have said, Jesus said. It's equally important for us to hear what the Spirit is saying as it is to hear what the shepherd is saying, as to hear what the Father is saying, for in every case it is to hear what God is saying. So here's Hebrews 3, 7 through 11. My translation so far, it's a working translation, means we can work with it for now. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit is saying today, if you hear the voice of the Lord your shepherd, that's expanded a little bit, don't harden your hearts. Don't make them stubborn. As in the embitterment. We're going to see that word, the embitterment. An incident, an incident, in the history of the Exodus generation that was created by bitterness. Beware of bitterness. As in the embitterment that led to revolt during the day of testing God in the desert. What did Jesus say when he was tested in the desert? You will not test the Lord your God. You don't put God to the test, he said in Matthew 4, 7. And he said that to the devil. Well, these people were putting God to the test in the desert. And God is speaking. He says in verse 9, Where your ancestors tested me and put me to the proof, even seeing my works for 40 years. Therefore, he says, I was provoked by this generation. Now notice this, because in the psalm it says that generation in Hebrews, it says this generation. So, what I said grammatically seems to be an insignificant change. It may be quite significant. So, therefore, I was pre- provoked by. This Let me put this to you first. I wasn't going to do this, and I was going to lead up to this. But is he talking about two 40-year periods here? One, in which people provoke God in the desert following the Exodus. Two, a 40-year period in which people were provoking God following the deliverance of Christ Jesus, him crucified and raised from the dead. A period between 30 A.D. and 70 AD Is he juxtaposing what the Spirit said regarding 40 years in the desert and lots of dead bodies in the desert with 40 years that is that Hebrews is basically at the end of A.D. 30 to A.D. 70? That's a question. I'm going to give reasons why that might be a yes to that question. And without really shutting the door completely, but I think it'll be very profitable for you. I'm going to do that right now in the second half of this message. Therefore I was provoked by this generation and said, they're always led astray in heart and they have not known my ways. You know one of the ways they're led astray in heart? They got out into the wilderness on the way to the promised land and said, I wish we could go back to Egypt where we had free stuff, free food. They wanted to go back to where the state provided everything for them, but they sacrificed in their mind the memory of slavery. They wanted free things at the cost of their freedom. They forgot we were slaves that got free stuff. The cost of free stuff was our freedom. Oh, but they forgot that part. That's one of the ways God is provoked by a generation. And that generation could be on their way to some very strong, stern, severe realizations about life. But let's continue. Your ancestors tested me, put me to the proof, even seeing my works for 40 years. Therefore I was, so in other words, give them miracles and they'll settle down. No, these are people who provoked me all the time while I was doing miracles. After I had done 10 vast miracles called plagues to deliver them from Egypt. And as I did miracles all through, their times in their wanderings of the wilderness. Moses would strike the rock or speak to the rock and water would gush out. Manna came from heaven. Desert tribes who attacked were defeated. Miraculously. And yet they still put me to the proof. Therefore I was provoked by this generation and said... They're always led astray in heart and have not known my ways. Verse 11, as I swore in my wrath, if they enter into my rest. Now that's an idiom of speech, a Hebraism as it's called, which means they are not going to enter my rest. They will not enter my rest. They will not enter a land of prosperity that I have for them. The way this is put is, literally, you may have heard a parent say this. "If I swear, if you do this, and that's what God is saying. He leaves the sentence open. I swear in my wrath, I don't know what I'll do if you go into the land. Meaning, you ain't going into the land. I swear, if you think you're getting the car tonight, you ain't getting the car tonight. You see? So this forty year long provocation of God was punctuated by two incidents. This made me think of Clint Eastwood once in an interview. He was interviewed and he was asked, What was your favorite movie that you ever saw? I think maybe even your favorite Western. He said The Oxbow Incident. And the Oxbow Incident is a wonderful movie if you want to watch a movie if you're bored during the having to stay inside or something. The Oxbow Incident a wonderful film, and it's in black and white, but it's an incident about a kind of a mob of people who find men that look guilty of murder. Well, it goes on from there, and the incident happens, it's called the Oxbow Incident, and this incident is called the Embitterment. Spoken of here, it has the status of what we call an incident, that is an event of significance in the historical and dramatic narrative of the history of Israel. An incident, by definition, and I looked at, I always like to redefine words, because we use them all the time, and then I'll say, let me see what that exactly means, because I've been saying it a lot lately. So I look at American Heritage College Dictionary, 5th edition, as usual, and it says, an incident is a usually violent or disruptive occurrence. Especially one that precipitates a larger crisis. Now, there may be two incidents in question here in this passage in three seven to eleven. I incidentally, not violently, I recommend that you read some passages of Scripture. Nehemiah chapter nine, the whole chapter. Read it. I'm just saying it would be beneficial if you did. You don't have to. I don't give homework. Daniel chapter 9 also, at least the part of his prayer. Both of these have to do with men praying for their nation. Psalm 106, the whole psalm. Psalm 78, the whole psalm, compared with Psalm 95, which is 94, as we know. These are all recitations or iterations of Israel's history, and they're very instructive. Acts chapter 6 and 7 by Stephen, same thing. And in a different way, Hebrews 11 is an iteration of the heroes of Israel's drama and the history of Israel. The reason I want you to read these is because I'm going to be asking the question that was debated by two rabbis. One was the famous rabbi Akiba they debated as to whether when God prohibited a generation from going into the promised land and into what he called my rest, was he prohibiting them from ever entering his eschatological rest in eternity future? In other words, were they forbidden from entering into eternal life forever and ever and ever? One rabbi said yes. Another rabbi said no. No. And one rabbi used Psalm 50 passages in there to show that, yes, even though they were eliminated from that possibility in time, they will be allowed into the eschatological future. Now, there's good arguments on both sides of this, which is kind of scary for you if you think you're in a universalist. And so we're going to entertain this and ask this question and not answer it facilely or easily, which means I ain't going to do it today. I'm just giving you an idea where we're going. The embitterment here may be two incidents, one at the beginning of these 40 years and another at the end. And because two embitterments happened, it implies that all during the 40-year period the hearts were wandering from the word. The embitterment spoken of here as the status of an incident, as I said, and there may be two incidents in question. The first is an occurrence of rebellion against the Lord at Meribah, M-E-R-I-B-A-H, in Exodus 17one 7 1-7. The second at Kadesh, K-A-D-E-S-H, in Numbers 20, verses 1-13, where even Moses' spirit was embittered due to the rebellion of the people. He had finally had it with them. And he even reacted sinfully with bitterness, and that's found in Psalm 106, one of the psalms I asked that you might want to read, in verse 33, compared with numbers, the story is told in Numbers 20, verses 12 and 13, that the first of these incidents occurred at the beginning of the desert trek, and the second near the very end is an indication that the people consistently put the Lord to the test Over the course of 40 years, during which they wandered in their heart, meaning they were never attentive, they were never intelligent, they were never reasonable with God's reasoning, they were never responsible, and they were never in love, either with God or with one another. And so, they wandered in their heart, and these two specific incidents highlighted this apostasy. When you see violent events erupt, it's a result of people who've been wandering in their hearts for years before it happened. And the event itself, the incident, leads to greater incidences. In other words, riots over a period of time can lead to civil war. Something can spark something. The murder of the Archduke of Ferdinand was an incident, but it triggered a larger incident that historians like to call World War I. You see, incidents. The incident called the embitterment happened at Meribah, where the people bitterly complained about the lack of water. Bitterness is later addressed in Hebrews 12.15 where the PT warns the entire assembly to be on guard, lest anyone fail the grace of God. And a toxic root of bitterness springing up defiles many. When God seems not to come through for us on a certain matter, or at the time that we expected him to do so, with regard to a certain thing, the heart can grow weary and a toxic root can become established in the soul. It can grow up. Bitter complaining can defile others and even result in their agreement with the bitterness. In Colossians 3.19, Paul counsels husbands to love their wives and warns them not to be bitter against them. Bitterness is against love. It's the the antithesis of love. It's related to envy and self-centered ambition in James 3.14. Bitterness is listed with sinful anger and wrath, insult and slander that is to be put away from us along with all malice, according to Ephesians 4.31. Bitterness makes a comedian unfunny and defiles his audience night after night. Bitterness infects newscasters and defiles their listeners. Bitterness leads to revolt against the saving grace of God. Bitterness is a fruit of unbelief, the result of a heart led astray, an evilly affected heart of unbelief is what Hebrews 3.12 will tell us right after this little passage we're considering. Moses himself was embittered by the embitterment of the people at Kadesh, where he famously struck the rock twice in his bitter anger. Beware of bitterness. No matter who you are, it can affect you evilly. Harmfully. It should be noted, though, on a lighter note here. Lighter notes are always welcome at times like this. That Moses himself was not permitted to enter the land that God had promised. Moses himself was not permitted. He shared in the bitterness of the people. Bitterness above all things will prevent you from experiencing life and joy and peace and patience and love bitterness usually results by you giving the custodianship of your happiness to somebody else that was bitter now it should be noted that moses but here's the argument was is does that mean moses because he was prevented from entering the land, that he was prevented from ever entering into God's rest? I don't think so. I think we have a partial answer because we notice that Moses appeared along with Elijah speaking with Jesus about Jesus' own upcoming exodus, and it calls it that, on the Mount of Transfiguration. So we know one thing. Moses might have been kept from the land in time, but he sure wasn't sent to hell. At least for Moses, the divine prohibition of his entry into the land and into the rest that God provided there evidently did not preclude his entry into the glory of the eschatological rest that still remains for the people of God, according to Hebrews 4.9. Now, one of the ways that the people of Israel tested the Lord in the desert, and I mentioned this before, was by voicing the desire to return to Egypt. In Numbers fourteen three, there's so many passages I was tempted to put together for this, but in the desire to be a little concise here, as well as to bring a lot of things to the fore, I've kept a few. In Numbers 14 and verse 3, Numbers 14, the whole chapter is worth reading in connection with this. In their outcry against Aaron and Moses, they said, Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? This complaint was no doubt fueled by the deceptive longing in their hearts for what they called free food. They were given while enslaved in Egypt. We got free food. And the food was good. Of course it was. You had to be well-nourished to make bricks and to carry bricks to make buildings as slaves. In Numbers 11.5, they remembered, they actually remembered, they said, the free fish, you can see it going through their minds, sugar plums dancing in their heads. Free fish, they said, the cucumbers, melons, leeks, onions, and garlic. I'll tell you one thing. If I was taken out of Egypt, that wouldn't be a temptation of mine. Fish, melons, cucumbers, leeks, onions, and garlic. No way. Now, if we were fed with pizza and we were fed with pepperoni pizza, especially, and steaks, especially ribeyes, medium rare, then I'd be starting to long for Egypt. Fish, not so much. People tend to be attracted to the idea of a national government providing free food and care. They're attracted to that idea. Why? Because they're losers, They are inattentive to what life really means, unintelligent, unreasonable, irresponsible, and I won't say unloving, I'll just say stupid. They're attracted to such a thing. National governments providing free food and care while ignoring the cost of being enslaved. People today have to ignore history as well as the scriptures to want a system where the state provides everything free but where the cost is their freedom. Now, I'll be bold. You know what I'll say? I'll say, listen to what the Holy Spirit is saying to you today, saying to the United States of America today. People have to ignore history as well as the scriptures in order to want a system where the state provides everything free, but where the cost is their freedom. Now, in Acts 7.39, in Stephen's own iteration of Israel's history, before the council, what did he say he said our ancestors didn't want to obey moses whom god had appointed instead stephen said they rejected him and their hearts returned to egypt their hearts turned it says to egypt this was despite the oracle of god that said deuteronomy 17:16 you will never again Go back that way. When they passed through the Red Sea, the whole armored divisions of Pharaoh with the chariots and horsemen were drowned in the sea. And God said through Moses, you're never going to see them again. Why? Because you ain't never going back there. You can long for it, but you aren't going back. I think a book was written once that said you can never go home again. And that's true in many different ways so an intriguing question looms here and suggests itself in subtle ways in the slight emendations of the text of the septuagint of Psalm 94 7b through 10 by which the Hebrews homilist in Hebrews changed a couple of things as we'll see I'll give you a hint and then we'll close therefore as the Holy Spirit says notice again he's speaking now as well as when the psalm was written he's speaking in the now of the Hebrew recipients of this homily he was speaking in the now of the day in which Psalm 94 was written he is speaking in our now, now. I've said that the grammatical emendations are insignificant. Grammatically, they are insignificant or they are small between Hebrews 3 7b to 11 and Psalm 94 7b to 11. However, the implications of these subtle emendations are astounding. Hebrews 3 9, for example, has. Dokimasia, D O K I M A S -S I A. Dokimasia, which is a data feminine singular common noun. We'll look at this more carefully down the road. Dokimasia is a data feminine singular common noun meaning testing or examination or challenge, and it can even mean a proving ground, a place for testing. That goes both ways. Israel proved God on that proving ground. But God proved Israel on that proving ground and Moses in his leadership. Whereas the Septuagint 94 9 of the Psalms has Edokimasan. Edokimasan. It's D E D O K I M A S A N. It's an aorist active indicative of the verb dokimazo which means to prove or to test or to challenge. Now these are slightly different uses of the same word that comes from dokimazo. Hebrews 3:10 has epon eipon an aorist active indicative first person singular of lego. We looked at that before lego which means to say or to speak. Hebrews 3:10 has the demonstrative dative feminine pronoun tauté. Now, I'm not showing off here. I'm just saying the slight emendations. He has tauté, T-A-U-T-E. I'll write it down. T-A-U-T-E for tauté. And that means this. T-A-U-T-E. T-A-U-T-E. Tauté. It means this. Like if I'm going to say this book right here, this Bible right here. Or I could say that book over there. It's two different books. That and this. In Psalm 94, it's I was provoked by that generation, that 40-year period of that generation of 40 years. But in Hebrews, he uses the word Taute, this, not ekene, e k i e i n e, that, he uses this, as if to say, I'm now talking about this 40 year generation between AD 30 and 70 who are about to have a comeuppance called AD 70, which we'll see. So, apon for Lego has a slightly different slant than Lego from Psalm 94.10. 3.10 of Hebrews has taute, meaning this, whereas the septuagint of Psalm 94.10 has ekene, E-K-E-I-N, long E, which is a demonstrative date of feminine singular meaning that. So the readers are saying, okay, that generation, and the Holy Spirit's saying, yeah, and this one. So my question, and we'll leave it open for now. My question, and we'll leave it open, which means we'll go back to it maybe next time or maybe a time down the road. Does the 40 years indicated by the Holy Spirit in Psalm 94, 9, Septuagint, correspond to a 40-year period at the end of which Hebrews was being written, that is, late 60s A.D., that being a 40-year generation, A.D. 30 to 70, which was also provoking God by unbelief. Not all the generation, remember, not all the generation fell dead in the wilderness. Most of them did. So if so, if that's the case, this signifies what I would call a pretty important interpretive move here. So we've got a lot ahead of us to deal with on this small passage, which will expand out all the way through 4.13 anyways. So until then, Father, we thank you for this opportunity to look into your word. And once again, may these words penetrate our hearts. May we not harden our hearts today as they did then. May instead we be attentive to your word so that we may be intelligent with the mind and the thinking of Christ. Reasonable in presenting our bodies as a living sacrifice to you resulting in reasonable service and worship of you, responsible as people who are responsible to hear and apply your word, and mostly in love as the Holy Spirit pours out the love of God in our hearts. May all of these things be realized in us. In Jesus' name, amen.